Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning, beginning at verse 4. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, and we'll go through verse 25. It is a sobering exercise to think about your own funeral, what people will say, who will show up to think about your own funeral. If you're a Christian, I want to ask you this question. At your funeral, will anyone stand up and say, he taught me about Jesus? Or she taught me who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him in all of life. Will anyone stand up and say, they taught me about Jesus? Now, I don't mean that you need to become a full-time evangelist or go into full-time ministry or get on a plane and go to the nations, though God may indeed call some of us to that great purpose. But I mean you need to be intentional. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be intentional intentional about making Christ known with your one and only life. You need to be intentional when it comes to teaching people about Jesus. Jesus's last words is recorded in the gospel of Matthew. He couldn't have been clearer. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Jesus said that, not Jeff Mingy, just to clarify. All right, all authority, Jesus said, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'll be with you to the very ends of the age. You cannot, it is impossible to obey the Great Commission without teaching others about Jesus. Again, I don't mean to suggest that you need to stand on the platform or be at the front of the classroom or be on the, 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 uh, the household name, but you need to be intentional when it comes to teaching others about Jesus. You need to be intentional intentional about teaching other people about Jesus. It may be that the Lord puts you on the great mission field of parenting and you have the opportunity of teaching your children about Jesus. It may be that the Lord puts you in an apartment complex and uses you as a missionary to teach the people in that apartment complex about Jesus. It may be that the Lord puts you on a sports team or in a Boy Scout group or in this group or in that group with the intention of using you to reach others with Jesus. I wanna talk to you this morning about being a Great Commission Christian. Being a Christian that helps others come to know Jesus. Now, you and I have all kinds of excuses on why God shouldn't use us, right? Why he should use somebody else to teach others about Jesus. If you've got an excuse, I've got another one for you. But I'm convinced that God intends to use you to reach someone for Christ. It might be a coworker, it might be a teammate, it might be a family member or a friend. I'm convinced that God intends to use you. Not you, the you, you you wish you were, but the you you actually are. I'm convinced that God intends to use you to reach others for Jesus. We're going to turn our attention to Acts chapter 8 this morning, see the ministry of a man named Philip who who comes to be known as Philip the Evangelist. First, we'll see how Philip made a broad impact as he reached the city of Samaria for Christ, and then we'll see how Philip made a specific impact as God used him to impact an individual for Christ. So I'm praying that you, like Philip, would be an evangelist. 
That might be a scary word for some of us, right? But again, for, uh, uh, Sam Chan's book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. But I'm convinced that God intends to use you to reach others. And as a result, my prayer is that you will reach the city for Christ and you'll reach the individual for Christ. First of all, let's consider that God intends to use you to reach the city for Christ. He intends to use you to reach the city for Christ. Luke opens up this section. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The early church grew. God was using Stephen, one of the lead servants in the early church, to really impact people. We can read his story in Acts 7. As people came to know the truth about Christ, they began to see the lies they had been operating by. And this threatened some of the existing authorities. So they had Stephen killed. And as a result of this, an increasing persecution, Luke records that people were scattered. They were in Jerusalem, but life got hard for Christians in Jerusalem, so they were scattered throughout the earth. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is essentially a summary statement of how God advanced the gospel throughout the book of Acts. It's fascinating. In the book of Acts, the gospel never, uh, we, we never see a church say, ah, okay, here's our, here's our mission plan. Here's how we're going to reach them. Normally, what happens in the, gospel, in, in the book of Acts is that there's persecution, people scatter, and wherever they go, they take the gospel with them. It's unknown men and women proclaiming the word wherever they go. The majority of these men and women are not named. Philip is an exception. Peter is an exception. Stephen is an exception. For every name you read in the New Testament, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of faithful men and women who lived and died for the Lord, leveraged their lives to advance the gospel, and we know none of their names. So when we read about Philip, by all means, let's see Philip. But let's also see the hundreds of other men and women who were around Philip whose names we don't know. There are tons of unnamed men and women that God uses in the Bible. Scholar Michael Green writes this. As early as Acts 8, we find that it is not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries, the men evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. It was they who traveled along the coast plain to Phoenicia over the sea to Cyprus or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists just as much as any apostle was. Indeed, it was they who took the two revolutionary steps of preaching to the Greeks who had no connection with Judaism and then launching the Gentile mission from Antioch. It was an unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem and they went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. Now, this must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread. Michael Green and many others agree that the gospel advanced most in the early church, not through the apostles, but through unnamed men and women who, as Michael Green says, gossiped the gospel wherever they went. 
That's how they change cities. That's how they change the world. That's how they change their families. They gossiped the gospel wherever they went. That's how it worked in the early church, and that's how it works today. The gospel advances most through ordinary men and women who will never stand on the stage, never preach or speak in front of a gathered crowd. They're not famous, etc. Ordinary men and women who are known not to the masses, but they are known to their neighbors. Friends, if we're going to break the 100 barrier in a healthy way, it's not going to be primarily because of how cool our gatherings are or how great my sermons are. Although, let's just take a moment. We got some really great sermons here. I mean, just my humble but accurate opinion, right? It's not, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do it. It's going to be what happens when we scatter. It's going to be you reaching your neighbor and you reaching your classmate and you reaching your teammate and you building that relationship with your coworker so that you have the opportunity to advance the gospel. That's how we change the city one by one. Last night, uh, we had dinner with Lauren's uh, parents and, and, and we were driving home and I got a call um, from a guy I had not talked to in 20 years. And he said, hey, Jeff, I've got some bad news, some sad news. He, his, his sister, who I was good friends with in, in middle school, has been very sick. And he said, she's at the end. And he said, Jeff, would, would, you, would you just swing by the house and pray with her? Would you just go see her? It wasn't a monumental moment. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of people there. It was just the family. It was just me. It wasn't, it, there were no spotlights, no music in the background type moment. It was simple, ordinary obedience. And look, I'll be the first to tell you, I probably didn't do it perfectly. In fact, I know I didn't do it, but, but I went and I did the best I could. I opened up the Bible, read Psalm 23, prayed with the family, gave some hugs, did the best I could. Friends, that's how we do it. Now, I, I only got invited into that room because I had over 20 years of friendship. And, and you have 20 plus years of friendship that will open up some rooms to you that I'll never be invited into. And even if I were, they wouldn't listen to me, but they'll listen to you. That's how we change the city for Christ. Not in monumental moments, but in regular, ordinary obedience. That's what it looks like for the word to go about scattering. So when you read preaching in verses like Acts chapter 8, verse 4, don't think pulpit ministry. Preaching is a subcategory of word ministry. Sometimes it means heralding, as in a, uh, a pulpit proclamation. But often, Luke uses a variety of phrases to describe word ministry. These phrases include preaching the word, proclaiming Christ, teaching the Jesus is the Christ. So when we think about reaching the city for Christ, think about the word spreading throughout the city. So verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, why is Samaria important? We're not told specifically why Philip chose Samaria. We don't know what he was thinking when he looked at the map and said, I'm going there. We do know that many Jews would have intentionally chosen not to go to Samaria. There was over a thousand years of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. We can get a sense of the relationship when, when Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman in John 4 and John comments that this was strange because Jews did not associate with Samaritans. John inserts that in. But now Luke wants us to know that the gospel was spreading to Samaria just as Jesus had said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
So let's recognize for a moment that if God intends you to reach others, he just might use you to reach someone that right now you don't even like. But remember this, God's desire to reach someone always usurps your desire to avoid them. God's desire to use you to reach someone always usurps your desire to avoid them. Just ask Jonah. It won't turn out well. Verse six, and the crowds with one accord in Samaria, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now notice that the crowds paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Do you think that's true today? Are the crowds paying attention to Christianity? Now, on the one hand, our obedience is not determined by whether how people respond to our obedience. We are to be obedient to Jesus no matter how people respond. But like Paul, we labor for a response. We're not apathetic to whether, or, whether people accept or reject Jesus. We're not passive knowing that people without Christ are facing an eternal hell. The statistic I mentioned last week, which I quoted wrong, I stated that 25% of millennials don't know or don't care if God exists. The actual statistic, 43% of millennials stated they either don't know, don't care, or don't believe that God exists compared to 28% of boomers. That's from Arizona Christian University, a recent study. We know that those aren't just statistics. Those are people. So Samaria paid attention to Philip. Do you think that people pay attention to Christianity today? Now, that's really the wrong question. If you're a, a Christian, the question is this, is anyone paying attention to you? Have you earned the right to speak, as our friends in young life often use the phrase? Do, do people trust you? Do they seek your input on life decisions? Do they want to know how you can help them deal with their guilt or their shame or their fear or their anger? Samaria paid attention to Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. He had made the gospel clear and he had made the gospel visible. Verse eight, so there was much joy in that city. You can imagine what that was like. The word scattering, Philip doing great deeds, making the gospel clear, making the gospel visible, and there's much joy in that city. What if God used you to reach your city or your neighborhood or your street for Christ? What if he used you to begin a Bible study in every home? What if every family represented on your street saw someone get baptized? What if, what if that lonely person two doors down from you saw that, that he, she could start a, a prayer ministry and change the neighborhood? What would that look like in 10 years if God used you to change your city for Christ? Well, friends, take the first step. This summer, plan a party. Get to know your neighbors. Be like Sam Chan, five o'clock, go out, water your lawn, just see what happens, right? Get to know your neighbors. Another pastor recently told me that he and his wife have fence parties in which they'll invite everyone with whom they share a fence line over for dinner. And they said, it's just a big party. It's nothing, it's just a big party and we have fun with it. They'll share, everyone they share a fence with, they'll, they'll invite to come over for a cookout. Use this summer to reach the city for Christ. Get to know your neighbors, those around you. Friends, is the task of making Jesus Christ known, the task of reaching your city for Christ, is it the main ingredient in your life or is it a decorative garnish set to the side? 
Are you reaching your city for Christ? And secondly, reach the individual for Christ. This, Luke does this often. He'll paint in broad strokes and then he'll focus in to get really narrow, really specific. Verse nine, but there was a man named Simon. We just went from the whole city of Samaria to a man named Simon. Luke pauses the momentum of the narrative to focus in on this story, the story of an individual. So if you're a Christian, hit time out real quick and just ask this question. Can you think of an individual you have impacted for Christ? Can you think of an individual you have impacted for Christ? And who is the individual that the Lord might be saying, hey, 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 I want to use you to reach them. I want to use you to minister to them. I want to use you to get to them. So it was with Philip. Philip reached the city of Samaria and he reached a man named Simon. Now Luke would have likely heard these stories directly from Philip. Luke stayed with Philip in Acts chapter 21 in Caesarea. You can imagine the apostle Paul, Luke, and Philip staying up late into the night and trading stories. Philip would have leaned back in his chair and said, oh, man, hold on, have I told you the story of Simon? Have I told you the story of Simon? Making disciples was never a vague command for Philip. He knew that following Jesus meant reaching people for Jesus. And so he displays this from the earliest moments of his following Jesus. John records in John chapter one, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Philip's first moment of following Jesus. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. John chapter 1, Jesus says to Philip, you follow me. Jesus found Philip and immediately Philip finds Nathanael. Philip knew the importance of reaching individuals. Philip took that same obedience to Samaria. He impacted the individual in Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and now the individual in Simon in Acts chapter 8. So back to Simon. Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So Simon was a successful magician in the city, but he was beyond just successful. He was an object of awe in the city. Here comes Philip preaching the gospel. The city, which was talking about how great Simon was, was all of a sudden talking not about Simon, but about Christ. Friends, the gospel will confront claims to greatness in our culture. If your definition of success is look at me, then you will always consider the gospel, which calls us to look to Christ as a threat to your worth. We are called to be backup singers, not the main star. Simon is an illustration of pride. If you're going to reach individuals for Christ, you're you're going to be dealing with prideful people. You can probably think of a couple right now. Don't look at them, all right? At least not on purpose. Don't point. If you're going to reach prideful people, that's how it goes. So what happened? Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So they heard Philip preach the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Christ. They believed and they were baptized, men and women. They had been paying attention to Simon and they had been amazed by him. Now they're paying attention to Philip. They're amazed by Jesus. They're believing his preaching about Jesus and getting baptized to show that they belong to Jesus. Again, imagine if that happened on your street. Imagine if whatever it was that has their affections right now was replaced by a love for Christ. And as Philip went into the Samaria, he saw the way the city looked at Simon and he knew that they needed to look to Christ. So even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. Now it's going to become apparent that Simon's conversion was likely not genuine. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke, at this point in the narrative, is somewhat confusing in what he decides to explain and what he decides to simply leave unexplained. Luke isn't giving us a topic lesson on the Holy Spirit here. It seems like what happens here is not normative to the rest of the book of Acts. As we read scripture, we find that the normal practice and understanding is that a person receives the Holy Spirit when they become a Christian. There is normally not a twofold event. So this is abnormal. This is an odd moment for a special purpose. God withheld the Holy Spirit. And we're left asking why. Well, he did it for his purposes, perhaps to expose sin. He uses this moment to expose Simon's sin. He uses this moment to expose the sin of the Samaritan believers who had likely, likely had an attitude of rebellion against the church in Jerusalem. We don't need them. He uses this moment to expose the sin of the apostles in Jerusalem who likely looked on Samaritan believers with critical eyes. But why did God withhold the Holy Spirit for his purposes for his purposes, to show that he was making the gospel advance even to Samaria. Are you in awe of the sovereign mercy of God behind your being a spirit-filled believer? Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that Anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So in reaching the individual, ministry gets really messy right here. Just a heads up. If God uses you to minister to people, it's going to be messy. It's not going to be clean. It's going to be messy. This is what it's like. Simon tries to pay for the Holy Spirit. This is where where the term uh, simony or simony comes from. It means to pay for a religious position. James Montgomery Boyce explains, when Simon offers to pay for the Holy Spirit, he is thinking of the Holy Spirit as an it. Many people do this. They think if I have it, then we can use it to integrate our lives, overcome our problems, live victoriously or whatever it may be. But the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. When we get that clearly in our mind, then we can see that the object of our relationship to the Holy Spirit is not that we might have more of him so that he, we can use him, but rather that he might have more of us and use us. Do you see the difference? 
Some of us are looking at the Holy Spirit and saying, oh, if I had more of the Spirit, then I could do this or that. But Luke goes on to make the point. No, that's not, that's not the point. The point is that the Spirit might have more of you and use you. Many Christians are thinking like Simon, I need more of the Holy Spirit that I might use him instead of thinking, how might the Holy Spirit use me? Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Unfortunately, there is nothing in the text that suggests that Simon was actually repentant. Even the answer, pray for me to the Lord, is likely a cop-out. Simon didn't need Peter to pray for him. Simon needed to get on his knees and do some praying himself. Friends, if you're going to seek to reach individuals for Christ, it's not always going to end with you seeing them come to know Christ and everything going perfectly. But trust the Lord in the process. Keep faithful to the task. We don't know how Simon's story ends, but we do know that Philip was faithful. And we'll see in a few weeks that he continued to be used by God as a witness to the nations. Verse 25 concludes this section with these words. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles, James and and Peter uh, uh, had come and they had, they had shared with this church in Samaria and now they go preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles had become like Philip. Jerusalem believers gladly taking the gospel to Samaritan villages. Now you, you may have noticed in that second half that Philip essentially disappears. He's not mentioned, not, by, not much. He sort of fades into the background. And I think one of the points that Luke is making is it's not about you. It's not about you. Sometimes you'll do a whole lot of work. You'll you'll buy the land. You'll remove the weeds. You'll till the soil. You'll plant the seeds. You'll water the seeds, but you won't get to enjoy the fruit. Somebody else will come along and the Lord will use them to enjoy the fruit, and that's okay because it's not about us in the end. It's all about Jesus. It's not what we can do with him, it's what he can do with us. He reminds us that he is not dependent on our greatness, but he uses us to make much of himself in all of life. If you're a believer, I wanna encourage you to grab the communion cup that's in the pew in front of you. They went about the villages of Samaria preaching the gospel. You might ask, well, Jeff, what's the gospel that they preached? 
It's the good news that Christ died for their sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That's, that's what Philip believed to be true. That's what Peter and John and the others believed to be true. That's what the Samaritans came to believe to be true. That was the power. Not in Philip's presentation, but in the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. Let's take that gospel to our nations, our, our neighbors. Let's take that gospel to the nations. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I want to invite you to partake in faith, remembering that Jesus Christ saved you and he sends you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. The Bible says it's dangerous, even deadly, to partake in the meal in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean that we need to clean up our act before we partake. It means we need to believe what the cup and the juice are, what the, the bread and the cup are proclaiming, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out for us. So if that's you, the table is open. Let's peel back that top layer to get to the, the bread element.